and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Tyler Cartwright's journey to health began when he found himself weighing in at 505 pounds. His anxiety and depression had caused him to turn to food as a coping mechanism, and he had eaten his feelings for far too long. Over the course of more than a decade of battling to achieve success, he managed to rid his body of 300 pounds of excess weight, completed his undergraduate and graduate studies, and learned to succeed in spite of his anxiety. His story has inspired tens of thousands of people and continues to encourage more with each passing day. Tyler is a highly sought after speaker, having presented to domestic and international audiences about topics ranging from diet and lifestyle, technology and wellness, and sustained change. His business ventures include the founding of the Keto Gains brands, Elemental Labs, At Go Health, and several other businesses that are passion projects of his. Tyler's first book, Kinsukaroy, Rebuilding Hope and Embracing Change, is an unflinching look at his experiences through life, which helped to forge the foundations upon which he built his coaching practice. Tyler Cartwright, what an honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. I'm glad I'm here. Uh, apparently, I'm really cool, according to uh, all that you just read. I don't know. but uh... pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> we always tell our guests, if at any point during the interview you want me to reread that a second or third time, you just let me know. Just make, make me feel good after you beat me down with questions. Let's see how it is. <laughs> That's right. It's all good. I appreciate, appreciate the intro, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Such an honor. You're, you've been somebody who we've had on our radar for quite a long time. Um, I reached out recently to Amy Berger to see if she wanted to come back on and talk about gluconeogenesis. She wrote an article that exploded my brain several years ago talking about gluconeogenesis. That was wonderful. And she said, you really need to get Tyler on to talk about this. So you came highly recommended. Um, so many things that you've been involved with with the low-carbohydrate space that I'm really curious to talk to you about, but I do want to talk to you uh, first a little bit about your journey. How was your journey into, you know, unhealth and how were you able to kind of turn that around? So when I was young, I figured out a couple of things. One, I really liked to read. Um, and two, I was pretty darn strong. Um, really gave myself into both of those passions pretty, uh, pretty violently. And, uh, you know, by the time that I was uh, 17 going into 18, I was a three-lift guy at just under 1,800 pounds. I was uh, I was kind of fast-tracking my way to uh, being a big old strong doofus out there uh, doing a whole bunch of powerlifting stuff. And uh, then I found my way out of high school and into college. And... Uh, in the process, I was committed. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go pre, you know, pre-vet or pre-med in, in that pathway. So like an uh, indecisive tool that I am at times, I decided to uh, go down the pathway of uh, biochemistry and, uh, and cell biology and just kind of look at, you know, splitting the middle, if you will, so that I could take some agricultural classes in case I decided to go work with animals. And if I decided that I was insane enough to go work with people that I you know, had all of the science creds that I needed to get in there. And so, uh, um, I, you know, lifting kind of took a backseat at that point. Um, I, I figured out that, uh, you could do a lot of keg stands if you were really strong and, uh, turn my pathway to alcohol with about the same ferocity with which I used to lift weights. Um, you know, I think when you're young, you don't necessarily realize how much exercise becomes sort of an anxiety coping mechanism. And part of why I read and exercise like I did was just because it you know, sort of abated a lot of anxieties that I carried around that I didn't even realize were, were being triggered, if you will, by that. So 
Uh, alcohol does much the same thing. Um, I've joked before that it is uh, the Homer Simpson line, beer, the temporary solution to all of life's problems. I uh, found a love for alcohol and uh, proceeded to reach a point where I could not hold enough alcohol in my stomach to actually get drunk. And I was uh, pretty scared by that, to be really honest with you. And, uh, you know, the one thing I figured out is that pizza never let me down. And it was way cheaper than buying, you know, handles of bourbon and, you know, you know, two liters of vodka and that's and that fun stuff. So um, it is a definite, or was, I guess, a definite realization in retrospect that a lot of these were just coping mechanisms that I was using in healthy things in unhealthy ways and then unhealthy things in unhealthy ways. And uh, it was a tough go, you know, I'm, I'm moved to, you know, to take a job in corporate America, working telecommunications management and, uh, you know, because that's what you always do when you almost graduate with two uh, science degrees, you finish out in B school and you, uh, you get an MBA, but uh you know, jumped into that space. I've always kind of had a technical bent in my brain. I've always thought of the body more like an engine or like a, a machine than I have like blood and pulp and pus and, you know, whatever else. There's another P that fits in there too, but uh, I'll, I'll leave that off for your audience. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that that's just the way that I've always sort of mechanistically looked at the world. And so it does make some sense, but it's really difficult to go into sales meetings when you're 300, 400, 500 pounds. And, you know, I mean, I, I can recount stories of breaking chairs at conference meetings and, you know, being lambasted in the parking lot and called all sorts of names by sales reps who were just furious at, you know, the embarrassment of having the engineer that they brought in, you know, breaking chairs. And I mean, in retrospect, I can't say I blame them because this is their livelihood and this is their financial, you know, wherewithal on the, on, on the table. But truthfully, it's one of those things where uh, it's the, the, you know, the expression, like when the student's ready to master appears, it was just a situation where until I was ready to, to change, I just wasn't ready to change. There was nothing prompting me towards that until uh went up to actually visit my mother uh, over a weekend and uh a few i guess about a week week and a half later i get a letter in the mail basically telling me that uh uh that uh parents aren't supposed to bury their children and that she was very concerned that that's exactly what she was going to have to do and you know i'm a big burly doofus but i'm still a mama's boy at heart i think most of us that grew up in the south to sort of get that as a gene when you know when you're born it just is like a it's a recessive gene that kicks in or something and so uh you know that's uh you know mama kicked me in the butt uh, to some degree and it forced me to really step back and look at things and i realized that i I had become a failure in just about everything that I was doing. You know, I was working, but I was falling asleep at my desk. I would get to the office and have no idea how I even got there. Couldn't remember the drive to or the drive from. Um, you know, that I, you know, my wife and I wanted kids, but that wasn't feasible or possible at that sort of a weight. Um, you know, there were just so many things that I wanted to change. And being a science nerd, I kind of just thought, I wonder if it's possible to come back from you know, from kind of peering over the edge and walk your way back towards health. And, uh, 
you know, the short answer, uh, 16, almost 17 years later is yeah, it is definitely possible. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. You were so open and honest and vulnerable in your book and in the content that you share. Um, it's kind of hard to hear, frankly. I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult journey and, and it's very, um, raw and riveting. And one of my favorite phrases is when pain increases, hearing improves. And it just basically mm -hmm. like you, you have to get to a point where things suck bad enough for you to want to change because change is very difficult. It's, it's not that easy to change what you're doing. So you must've gotten to that spot with that letter to at least start to direct you down that, that road. When did you come in contact with like low carbohydrate diets in that kind of space? So I had been kind of eating that way off and on for a while. It was, uh, you know, initially uh, my brother had gone on like the old Atkins diet and there was a part of me that just wanted to prove him wrong because science, right? And, you know, oh, you're going to blow up your kidneys or you're going to kill yourself or whatever. And the more I dug into, you know, physiology textbooks, the more I dug into cell biology textbooks, the more I dug into bio biochemistry, I was just like, there's nothing wrong with eating this way. Like I can't find anything that really creates a problem for me where I can be like, Hey bro, you, you need to read this or let me send you over some highlights from the study that I found. There just wasn't any of that out there. And so I just was like, well, I'm kind of fat and unhealthy. I might as well try it. And you know, it, it worked as long as I kind of stayed with it. But you know, the biggest challenge is, uh, you know, the pizza restaurant that you've been eating at for 15 years every Friday just kind of calls your name or drinks with friends or whatever, you know, one drink turns into 15 or whatever. And you're kind of, uh, two, you know, two steps forward, two steps back. So you're always kind of in the same place that you've always been. And, uh, you know, it, so it really was kind of a natural thing. I really didn't want it to work. I was trying like the zone diet stuff for a while and, and really, you know, it's geeky and, and, you know, zone diet, uh, that stuff's got some real interesting science behind some of the data and some of the research has been done. And so I was like, Ooh, that sounds interesting. And, and truthfully, I was just like, Hey, wait, or I could be eating ribeye. And I just kind of was <laughs> like, well, any diet that encourages me to have pork rinds and ribeye probably isn't the worst thing in the world. And so at least from my taste and preferences. And so, uh, so kind of came into it with a little bit of an intent to disprove, which may be a little different than a lot of folks came into the diet. And then secondarily, kind of my gluttonous streak sort of said, hey, you know, my, my you know, when I was training like I was 17, 18, I was probably eating twelve to 15,000 calories a day in any given day and maintaining a pretty healthy physique, you know, uh, um, but when you're training four, five, six hours a day, five, six days a week, you can pretty much get away with a whole lot of dietary indiscretion, especially when you're, you know, in your young prime, you know, in your thirties, you can't get away with that nearly as much. And so, um, it was really first kind of like, Ooh, steak. And then afterwards I was like, I just, I don't feel the need to eat 15,000 calories a day. I can eat 7,000 or 8,000 calories. And cutting your calorie intake in half when you weigh 500 pounds, it's like magic, right? Like who to thunk it, you know, you cut it in half and the weight starts to fall off. But yeah, I, it was, it's been a while. I've been a pretty old school. Uh, you know, I, I don't quite go back as far as, as Lyle McDonald's ketogenic diet book in 96, but, uh, you know, I, I was sitting here doing the math and I was like around 2000, Three, 2004, I guess, is when I really just started playing around with it.
Wow. OG for sure. I love it. Was Keto Gains your first kind of entry point into using this as, as part of your career? Like getting in the low carbohydrate space is something you wanted to really pursue as something you wanted to do professionally? So, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I, I spent a lot of time working in telecommunications and I used to joke that every day it leached a little bit more of my soul. You know, not only just working in corporate environments where everything was like a schmuck and a brown nosing fest, but also the aspect of like what I was doing. I'm like, hey, congrats. I sold a $2 million deal to Google. And like, because Google needs more fiber, right? Like, because Google, <laughs> you know, like they, they literally like, excuse the expression, I used to joke, they go to the strip club and throw around more than $2 million as a company, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's painful. You know, I just realized that like I wasn't making the world better. And I wasn't aiding, helping, benefiting anybody other than big business and faceless executives. And meanwhile, I would walk through the hallways of you know the offices where I'd work, and I would look at myself in the reflection of the mirrors, and I would look at the people at the desks and, and realize that all of us were basically slaves to unhealth because the culture itself just sort of took all of that humanity and all of that drive and all of that desire and channel that's sort of down one path, which is make us rich so we can give you a little bit. Um, and it had been a pretty painful four or five years in, in telecom before making the decision to sort of go all in with the coaching thing. We, we sort of got dragged into it. I've been a moderator of the community on Reddit on Facebook for a while. And, and, uh, couple of the other mods and, and some of the the long-term members there just added us to a chat that they had created on facebook for about 19 of us and said hey uh what's your paypal address we start on monday program and we're going to get to go and and i was like y'all are joking right because i got like a day job and luis was running a restaurant i believe still the bar at the time as well um and and they were like no you're doing this and <laughs> i was about two weeks into it when i went oh my god this is the thing that I was put on this earth to do. Um, it is putting back the parts of my soul that this job has taken away from me. And so I think almost four years to the day, I think it was the 31st of May or, or the 31st of March, rather, that uh, the company that I was working for at the time, um, I'll refrain from naming them, but they're a telecom company who was both big and uses the color red. Um, they, uh, offered a early retirement package or a buyout package. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And, uh, you know, that sounded great until I sat down and was like, crap, I just cut 65% of my gainful income in half. And so like, yes, it's a passion project. Yes. It's something I wanted to do, but man, those first years were, uh, you know, uh, I guess I can survive on like one pork rind a day until we can, uh, you know, figure out how to, how to rebuild the savings account. But, uh, you know, I will say that I believe in fortune and fortuitousness. And I really think, you know, whatever you want to call it, I would call it God, but let's, you know, whatever term we want to use here, you know, the, the universe, whatever when it drops money in your lap to give you a buffer and a window of time to go and pursue something that you're really passionate about and that you've got people who are thirsty and desperate for, 
it's such a cool thing to just be like, oh, darn, you know, kind of situation aligned at the same time that my passion was really getting stoked and my burnout for this thing over here was really, uh, you know, it was really kind of uh, three roads coming together into one. So, yeah, that's amazing. We both have a mutual friend, Robert Sykes, over at Keto Savage, mm-hmm. and he describes going, you know, working all these jobs that he didn't like and, you know, doing real estate, which he didn't like. And he was far away from home in Seattle. And I remember his story of like walking into the woods and, and, you know, whether it was a prayer or not, whatever he was doing was asking, like, why am I here on this earth and how can I create value for somebody? And I think those questions are so valuable to ask ourselves. We can, you know, so easily just slay away at something we don't love versus doing something we're really passionate about. And you're right. Like maybe there's going to be some lean times and it's going to be challenging. And we're going to have to have that, you know, growth mentality yet mentality and learn along the way. But, but you're right. There is something pretty special about aligning yourself with what you're here to do and the steps that, and, 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 you know, help that you get along the way. It's a lot like Stephen Pressfield's the, the war of art where, where the muse is coming in and giving you the little tips and tricks and, and chance meetings and things along the way. I think that's amazing. You know, I, I will say, uh, first of all, Robert's accent and the PNW just always makes me chuckle at the notion, right? I, I love the guy. He's a good dude. He was, I did a podcast with him. He's a nice guy. But, you know, I was just like, he's sort of like me. You got that little Southern draw thing going. And sometimes I go to places and they go, uh, where are you from? And uh, just kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm from West Kentucky originally. So, uh, but no, you, you're spot on. You know, it, it's funny we get, and I think it's, maybe it's unique to, us or western culture but we kind of have this uh i'm looking for you like a golden handcuff that sort of happens in a job or in a career you start to get a little high on your job title you know hey i became a senior manager instead of a regular manager hey what does that mean is it a raise honey no it just means more responsibility for like you know uh more people then you get to director and yeah there's a nice bump in pay and then there's a senior director position there's always it's like the carrot and the stick and there's always just these golden handcuffs that i think really keep people from pursuing their passions in earnest because of fear of like what if you know what if i can't make enough money what if i can't you know i can't succeed and and you know i've had some folks ask me that before in podcasts and my response is what if you die having never tried yeah, no, I love that. I think that's such a, a great point. What were you guys doing at Keto Gains that other people were not doing at the time? What set you apart? You know, I think Luis's background comes from a place of anorexia and mine comes from a background of binge eating and addressing sort of anxiety and issues in two, you know, from two different sides of, of sort of the Venn diagram, if you will. And when he and I first started talking, it was kind of this realization, you know, before we even really knew each other, we were just sort of Reddit acquaintances who would cross paths in chat messages or PMs. And, you know, we saw that there was this really tight overlap that existed between behaviors that really benefited people who were, you know, morbidly obese or obese who really were trying to become healthier and those people who were coming from a place of sort of self-starvation or, or eating disorders in that restrictive side of eating disorders where they were really trying to introduce high quality nutrition. They were trying to introduce, you know, food quality to the extent they could afford it. They were trying to introduce organic exercise to sort of offset some of the expenses of gyms and whatnot. And we kind of came into it from this perspective that there were, there were a lot of things I think that the paleo and ancestral community got right. 
um, there were some things that really went off the rails. Uh, a good example of that, and I've used this analogy before, is it, it was a good idea to ask, should I eat this? But the minute that is this paleo supplanted or replaced, should I eat this? Are two, you know, that it sort of jumped the shark and it became a productized or a marketed term. And I think the same thing has sort of happened within the keto and low carb space, where instead of saying, is this something that's going to benefit me nutritionally? Is this something that's going to fuel my body in a good or a healthy way? Is this something that's going to, to advantage me towards whatever goal I'm, you know, pursuing? Instead, now I hear all the time, is it keto? Is yeah. it keto? And I'm like, well, a Snickers bar is keto if you shave it thin enough. Like, you know, there's no issue calling anything keto. And, and there's some products out there that have actually manipulated their serving sizes just to pretend to sort of be low carb friendly. And I won't name too many names, but like you look at that and you're like, and then you consider how many desperate people who don't. They're so overwhelmed. They're so scared. They're not going to pick up a book and read it. They're not going to do any of those things. They go out there and then they're met with, there are at least six communities I've identified in Facebook that serve for no other purpose than to market spam products to desperate people. Million plus person communities that are out there. And I see people coming to Keto Games or to Ketogene Diaries or a number of the other sort of larger Facebook groups uh, for low-carb diets and I'll look to see before, you know, before we get going, I'll click on their name, you know, look at their groups they're in to kind of, you know, ferret out whether they're a troll or whatever. And some of those folks are actually members of those groups. And I'll send them a note saying, hey, just so you know, I mean, like, clearly you look like a legit profile. You've been online for a while. That group literally lives to sell you magic beans. Like, understand that that's not a place to go. And so... A lot of it was sort of taking those sort of paleo first principles, a lot of the really good stuff that came out of that ancestral movement, if you will, and marrying them with low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets. So looking at nutrient density, looking at potential for anti-nutrients and things that might create problems and really trying to look at a ketogenic diet and say, where has it become really difficult to get proper nutrition when you're eating a ketogenic diet? Um and we really looked at it from that perspective. And then the other side of the things is we've just always shot straight with people, you know, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it hurt their feelings and it broke my heart to have to say it, we valued and respected people too much to turn them into cash registers. And it became kind of an earmark for us. We just didn't we were kind of no nonsense. We didn't really sugarcoat a lot of things. It's, uh, you know, for a while it was a running joke between Luis and I, where it was the Dr. Phil photo is like, I'd sugarcoat it for you, but you, then you try and eat that too or whatever. But like, you know, that, that was a lot of what we were really trying to do. Like I said, it really wasn't coaching. It really wasn't let's grow this community to market to them. It was let's grow this community to help people who want better to figure out how to get better by giving them the playbook or the advanced, you know, the advanced strategies that we've learned from a combined 35 or 40 years of eating ketogenic. Cause God knows, I mean, I think we've all kind of gone down those rabbit holes or pursued after these things that sound like crazy great hacks until we gain weight or we get sick or we lose muscle mass or we stop performing well or whatever. 
being able to sort of carve a path and tell people, yeah, that looks really nice until you die. So just face this way and keep going this way. Follow me, you know, whatever became kind of a mantra for us. And I think giving people hope by seeing someone come out of an anorexic state and, and you can find the photos online. Luis looked like Michael Jackson from like the, you are not alone era before he really started eating and training well. And I came from it from being super obese to the point that, I mean, I weighed a quarter of a ton and to come at it, you know, I think it just inspired people because it wasn't another doctor who'd never been fat a day in their life. It wasn't, you know, a group of people who had never openly talked about eating disorders or depression or anxiety or, you know, coping mechanisms or abuse and all of those things. You know, we tackled those things head on. And, you know, I've always said like, uh, you know, opportunities present themselves when you do things for the right way or for the right reason. And we built this community just to try and help. It really wasn't about, oh, we're going to grow this in market. And then we grew from 17 people who said, you start on, on Monday or we start on Monday to, you know, I think 650 or so people in, in boot camp these days, depending on, you know, the, which camp we're talking about. So, you know, it's definitely been a, a huge growth curve, but it's really been a challenge for us to figure out, like, how do we keep things, you know, how do we keep things tracking forward because we're dealing with sort of second, third, fourth generation keto folks who I think have been swallowed up by a lot of the hyperbole and the rhetoric and the nonsense that's out there about how these diets work and what they do. And, you know, in that scenario, um, like we're having to I have a friend of mine who deals with working with people who come out of Christian cults. Um, and trying to help them to at least come to a place of like an orthodox understanding of Christianity. And one of the things he says, and I think it's a brilliant statement, is in order to get them saved, you have to get them unsaved. And, and you know, setting the, the religious or the philosophical aspects of that aside, that's a great concept or a great thought to think about. If somebody is convinced of something, we have to sort of uncondense them with evidence and detail and data and compassion and care. And then help to build them back up in a path that that actually is supported by science and evidence. And so I think that's a lot of what we've done, even when it's been painful and even when we could have cashed in or sold our souls to to grow. You know, we actually intentionally limit the group size for the sole purpose of just making sure that we have the right coaches that can work with the right, you know, the right folks and making sure that we're not. You know, I've seen some coaching services online where they're assigning, you know, 100 or 150 clients to one coach. And I'm like, how much coaching can you actually do when you're swallowed up so much that you don't even know the names or the backstories of the people that you're working with? Yeah, no, that's such a good point. You can so easily lose track of your clientele if you have, have an unlimited amount of people that you're trying to help. It's going to be much more difficult and way less personable. I, I love that story, and I love that you guys did all of this for the right reason. And that you, you know, spoke your truth. You, you told people what you were learning. A lot of that had to be around protein, which definitely is going to set up our conversation about gluconeogenesis. I mean, so many people in the ketogenic world were, I, I see, I see people coming out of it a little bit more now, but especially when I was getting into it, you know, seven, eight years ago, so many people were really afraid of protein and really wanted to keep the protein low, but were having issues with muscle mass or maybe over consuming fats. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were noticing? as far as your recommendations along the lines of protein and low carbohydrate? 
So there was a time when Dr. Atkins used to say, eat liberally from all fish and fowl, right? Like he wasn't constraining protein, nor was he really constraining fat. He was also known for saying, uh, I don't, I'm not saying calories don't count. I'm saying don't count calories. And I think that he was trying to bring forward an idea to people that eating a more satiating diet really would sort of self-restrict or self-limit the amount of calories that you were actually consuming in a day. You just didn't really need to do those things in order to have at least some early successes. Somewhere along the line, and I'm not entirely sure when the switch flipped, but I have some suspicions, but there are people in the community and I respect them enough to, you know, too much to, to call them out too badly. But there just started to be this narrative that you could overeat protein and it would kick you out of ketosis. And I'm sure this will be audio only. So I'm using air quotes around those expressions. So uh, there's a little bit of snark intended here. But the, the problem is, while that may be true, the amount that would be necessary would be so astronomically high that it didn't make any sense. And so what we found was that people were sort of intentionally limiting protein. And there was this narrative that you got to eat fat to lose fat. And so they were, you know, anytime that people would stall in a diet, their answer was just, I'm going to go chug more fat or I'm going to go, uh, it's a little cliche, but, you know, throw a stick of butter on the side of the plate and eat that stick of butter with my eggs or whatever. And every time I think about that, I pray for my toilet. Like that just sounds like a terrible, terrible way to live life. But there just became this narrative. And then people started really getting wrapped around the axle like the three to one ratio and the four to one ratio stuff that exists out there um and they somehow took that data which was intended to look at the caloric composition of a diet the energy of the diet and say three to one is a ratio of energy or four to one is a ratio of energy and they transmuted that in some way my guess is because they'd never read the research and they didn't think about it um to mass. And so they started saying that like, if I was going to have a hundred grams of protein, I would have to have 300 grams of fat or, or 400 grams of fat. They, they really got married to these ratios. And, you know, we would get people showing up in the community saying, I'm already eating a 70, 30 you know, or 70, 25, five diet. You know, why am I not losing weight? And I'm like, Hey, great. That's ratios. Is that of 10,000 calories a day or a thousand calories a day? Well, I don't know. Here's a guess of what I'm eating in the course of a day. I'm like, well, unfortunately, it's kind of that which isn't measured can't be managed. I can't really give you any insight there. But I see the switch that flipped. And that switch that flipped was people didn't think about the fact that a gram of fat has about nine calories per gram versus protein. So you're already at four calories. So you're already at over two times the energy composition, even at a one-to-one by mass. And so realistically, if you go to like a one and a half to one by mass, you're already at a three to one as an energy composition, a little more, almost four to one. So you start to kind of have, it's a little bit of, there's a frustration that happens, but then there's also this empathy that sort of comes in to go, man, I, I have missed it on so many different things. It's hard for me to be mad at somebody or upset, but trying to correct that narrative has been, uh, a life's work at this point, I think, just trying to help people because the biggest challenge and, and, you know, I think Luis nailed it when he said that eating protein and building muscle mass now 
is like a savings account for your retirement age or your your elderly years. Because when you get to be 50, 60, 70, putting on even a pound of lean mass is basically uh, you know, blessing from the, you know, from the 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 fate or whatever, because it's almost impossible to do outside of those early sort of newbie gains where you might get a few pounds before it shuttles off. The best thing that people can do is be eating enough protein and training and exercising now to build that up. And they just were restricting protein because the narrative was if you're not losing, you're either eating too little fat or too much protein. And so they would shift the balance again. And it broke my heart because the data really doesn't support any of those claims. And, you know, when we look at those things, those ratios didn't exist for fat loss diets. They existed for intractable epilepsy. Um, you know, those diets were used for juvenile cases of epileptic disorders that did not respond well, or like refractory epilepsy, where they didn't respond well to medication, you know, like a pharmacologic intervention. And so they would give these 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 diets based on these ratios but when you look at the outcomes data for those children that went through those things, they were stunted in size. They had less muscle mass than their peers. They tended to have shorter lifespans. And that's a sad thing until you realize that you you dance with the devil you know. You know that this can help control seizure disorders. It's going to help prolong brain activity, brain life. It's going to help to, to live a more robust life. You accept the consequences of this are less detrimental than the consequences of that. But to take that data and try and extrapolate that to a non-epileptic person who's simply trying to lose body mass or lose body fat, or to take that data and you know another good example is like take data from from type one diabetics and apply it to non-diabetics or to type two diabetics even doesn't make any sense. It's like taking rodent studies with blind faith and applying them to people without actually testing that data. Um, and I think that's really what happened. I think a lot of people just got, and I hate these terms scared of protein because that sounds ridiculous, but they started to see it as the cause of their lack of fat loss rather than the single best thing they could be eating, all things equal, to help exacerbate fat loss and to retain as much muscle mass as they could during the process of losing. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. I love how you explained epilepsy in that context. And and so much of this is so contextual. You really have to look at who studied, what was the desired outcome? What did they do? Does that apply to me or not? And, and, you know, the two, the two biggest things I hear about protein when people are confused about is first of all, they say, if you consume too much, you're going to damage the kidneys of the liver and all that stuff. And I mean, I, I, I don't even think we need to address that. I think that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> unless you're eating massive, massive amounts of, you know, chicken breast or something, which is disgusting. But secondly, the thing that I hear the most is if I consume too much protein, I'm going to have too much carbohydrate sugar in the blood. Can you talk a little bit about that and why people think that and, and where they're getting off track? So what ends up happening is as part of the pathway. So there are enzymes that exist in the mouth. There are enzymes that exist sort of in the esophageal tract and in the stomach that sort of start to break down the food that we eat before it really hits the stomach in earnest and goes into digestion and in the intestines themselves. Um, protein is ridiculously slow in digesting, but because the body from an evolutionary perspective kind of just presumes a meal is a meal, when protein is consumed, 
there is going to be a, a sequestration of glucose in circulation. The body's going, hey, I'm getting fed. I need to make room for being fed. So crank up a little bit on the insulin, push all of this stuff into storage because that's one of insulin's two main functions is to put, it's the putter inner of things, right? It's the, it's, I'm going to take this amino acid, I'm going to do this glucose, and I'm going to push it into the cells that can take it. And I'm going to turn up the volume as loud as I possibly have to, or as loud as I have to, to push those things into those cells, because I know that there is a steak coming down my gullet right now, and I'm going to get it. Um, when you eat a diet that is not a mixed meal diet, so you're having something like, let's say, just a ribeye steak or just a strip steak or something along those lines, that sort of evolutionary wiring gets a little bit haywired because now it's cleared this glucose, but there's not really any glucose showing back up. So insulin to glucagon ratio shift a little bit, it triggers the liver to start releasing some stored glycogen as new glucose just to try and regulate blood sugar. And so what people do, and, and I think this is part of a problem, is they'll start using glucometers to try and tease out data, but they forget that there's not a control version of them sitting right beside them where they can compare you know, I've said before, if they could clone me and we could do N equals two, then I could draw some actual corollaries out. But right now I can't. They'll test their blood sugar before they eat. And they'll test it, say, 30 minutes or 45 minutes afterwards. And they'll see that their blood glucose has risen. And they'll say, see, this is proof that protein is turning into carbohydrate. I ate too much protein because it raised my blood glucose. And the reality is, at best, and I, and I try to use this example, let's use whey protein because it's really rapidly absorbing and it's a great example. If you just consume, you know, I've got a monster energy can here, but, you know, whatever, of whey protein, you know, let's say 30 grams, whatever, realistically, only about five to maybe seven grams of that will even show up in digestion and into it. So, and protein gets broken down into amino acids. When they're broken down into the amino acids across the intestinal boundary, there are things called enterocytes where the amino acids are taken up and passed over into the, into the blood supply. That happens at a rate of about five to seven grams per hour after consumption, but it takes about an hour to two hours before that protein even shows up in the blood supply, those amino acids. And that's been verified by radiologic tracer studies and everything else. Um, it is almost illogical to think that something that hasn't even made its way into my blood supply yet is actually being converted into something else and dropped into my blood supply. Um, it, the, the logic doesn't, doesn't make sense. But let's Set that aside for a minute and deal with, let's say it's already there and the five to seven you know, grams of, of amino acid is, is transferring into, into the blood supply. The data suggests that even a ketogenic person where gluconeogenesis is actually going to be a little bit higher as a percentage of energy than a non-ketogenic individual, you're looking at about 13 to 15% of protein theoretically being converted to, well, I should say about 37% of proteins or the amino acids could be converted, but realistically only about somewhere between 11 and 15% actually would. And that's at a maximal level. The data I've seen suggests it's more like about 5%. 
So of that five grams, let's say, because it, it makes the math really, really easy, right? Um, you know, you've got five grams and you're talking about 5%, you're talking about 0.25 grams of amino acid being available for the process of gluconeogenesis or being used for the process of gluconeogenesis. And so people are drawing these corollaries. And to be honest, then it, we say nothing about the fact that it then goes to first pass metabolism into the liver, where as the liver has already released some of its, of its stored glycogen into, into circulation, the liver is just going to swallow up most of whatever glucose is there to sort of replenish its glycogen stores. And there's this notion in the ketogenic space that the liver is exhausted of glycogen when you become ketogenic. And if that happens, it's not called ketosis, it's called death. That's not a thing. It is definitely diminished to some greater or lesser extent. And I don't know that anybody's really ever done like a perfect study to really figure out what that is, but it is diminished. It's not gone. And so people are, are sort of, um, there's this expression in the keto space, like don't blame the butter for what the bread did or whatever. But like, I think that they're blaming the protein for what your evolutionary adaptations actually are. They're drawing conclusions about blood glucose increases being because protein. And it's really just because you ate. And it's a really intriguing thing because you see that even if I were to say, okay, hey, five grams shows up, we see you do all the math conversions, whatever. Um, let's assume for the, for the minute that, that one gram is theoretically available. Well, gluconeogenesis costs about 33% of the substrate anyway, so you're already back down to 0.75 or 0.66. You know, grams before it even really matters, and the body's already kind of cleared the runway. The insulin is, is therefore serving a purpose. The insulin raised from protein is actually to help make sure that that blood glucose raised doesn't remain in circulation for long periods of time. It's also there to help drive more amino acid into skeletal muscle tissue and a smooth muscle tissue to push it into the tissues and, and structures of the body responsible for uh, sex hormone production, immune hormone, or you know, thyroid function. Um, all of these things are what are called peptide hormones. So sometimes we only talk about protein as like, how does it affect my biceps, right? But we need to appreciate that your skin, your nails, your hair, your sex hormones, your thyroid hormones, and the signaling hormones for thyroid. So almost everything endocrine, everything exocrine relies on some component of amino acid as well. And so there is just this weird narrative. And then the thing that people don't appreciate when they say don't eat too much protein or you can kick you out of ketosis, is that the glycerol backbone of the triglycerides that you're eating, so the fat molecules in the food that you're eating, glycerol has a faster and less metabolically expensive pathway to insert itself into gluconeogenesis than any amino acid. So, you know, glycerol will gladly convert to glucose, and it's really, it's more cost-efficient metabolically to do so. There's another one, too. If we're going to talk about that, we can't, we don't eat too much fat or you'll kick yourself out of ketosis would be a thing that you might have to say. But what about the Cori cycle and the lactate from exercise? Are we going to say, don't exercise too much? You're going to kick yourself out of ketosis. Like at some point, we maybe should stop worrying about exactly what our ketone levels are and start worrying about how am I performing? How am I recovering? How am I feeling? How am I looking? How, you know, how are things happening? How am I feeling emotionally? Um, because I do think that sometimes 
getting this neurotic about details and data helps to sort of drive people into panic behavior where if they don't have the outcome they're looking for, it must mean I'm eating too much of this or not enough of that. And they start making these huge changes. And then sometimes just by sheer coincidence and time, they see a weight change. And then they conclude that, oh, it must be because I only ate yak fat, you know, along with, you know, lean protein mixed into a ball that I cooked in the oven. And people think I'm crazy when I say this, but there are studies that exist out there that put people in front of computers and said, every time that this blinks, you get like a dollar. And if you can figure out the pattern, then, you know, obviously you can make the thing blink more often on the screen and you'll just get more money. By the time that they finished the study, having not told the people in the study that it was completely random and there was no way for them to do it, they had answers like that if I stand on this chair and touch this fan on this particular blade, like the computer screen, will they had drawn pictures out of the white noise and concluded insane, complex, ridiculous ways to get that extra dollar out of this, this scientific study. And I just worry sometimes that people have forgotten that nobody that I'm aware of in the history of humanity has ever gotten fat by eating protein. Maybe that's a little hyperbolic, but the data is pretty clear. You almost can't eat enough protein to cause the body to gain weight because you've got the thermic effect. I mean, there's so many other benefits that exist there on a per calorie basis that I'd be more inclined to say eat more protein than I would to say eat less protein in a ketogenic diet. And I think Bill Legacos and some other folks have pulled out studies showing that there is actually an increased need for protein in a ketogenic diet, not a decreased need. So that's a long-winded answer like most of my answers have been today, but uh, that is the fastest version of a primer on gluconeogenesis that I can give. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I love that it was such a thoughtful answer. The study you mentioned sounded like me um, as a kiddo trying to get a Nintendo cartridge to work in a in an NES, like blow on it. You got to put it through your shirt. If you're turning like counterclockwise, like three or four times while you're like fighting <laughs> off your buddies who want to play Ninja Turtles with you or something like that's how, that's how the cartridge works. <laughs> you you had to push the button, turn it off, push it back real fast. Like there were so many different unwritten rules for every Nintendo. Yeah, and the reality is if you're just taking some alcohol and put it on a cotton swab or something yep. and wiped it gently, it would have worked like a champ. Yep, so, totally. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it's exactly right. We are wired to to find signals in the noise. You know, it is, it, it is to our evolutionary benefit to see the tiger that's inside of that bush. And sometimes I think we just identify patterns that aren't there and we conclude false narratives and we let them drive the entirety of, of some aspect of our existence. And I think sometimes the keto thing really does a lot of that. It kind of creates this sort of tiger in the bush mentality of diet and lifestyle change where, you know, I know Amy's been banging this drum for years, but it ain't that difficult, you know, eat enough protein, don't overeat fat if you're trying to lose body fat. You know, get enough carbs that you feel good, but not so much that it creates blood glucose roller coasters. And if a glucometer helps you to figure that out, then that's awesome. But if it causes you to act neurotic, throw it in the trash yeah. or, or donate it or donate it to a local hospital or something. Get rid of it because it's creating 
tiger in the bush syndrome for you and it's not healthy. It's not going to benefit you in any way. Yeah. I love that. So, so I guess I hope I phrase this question correctly. What, how much value do you put into tracking certain metrics? Could be blood sugar, could be ketones, could be cholesterol markers, could be all these different things versus let's say somebody like, you know, a Sean Baker who says similar to what you said before, like, how do you feel like my, what I, in my opinion, the best way to determine your best tomorrow is to be really good today. Like if you feel good, if, if you can do all the things you want to do, if you have good energy and mental clarity, I, I want it to be true that I don't need to pay as much attention to some of those other markers and that will set me up for the best future. What do you think about that? I think that if you're 99% of the way to wherever you're trying to go and you're trying to tease out the absolute best results, then unquestionably more, you know, it's like any negotiation, the person with more data typically wins, right? You know, in, in those, you know, in those, sort of only one side can win tense negotiations, the person with the most information and the most accurate information has the best chance of winning. Um, or to put it in a more simple term, uh, the, the best hand in a poker game usually wins the pot. And, you know, unless you suck at poker. But, uh, you know, I think that the reality here is uh, sometimes I think it's beneficial and I think it's beneficial for a subset of people who are scientifically minded or who really just want to get the best result from the start. And they don't want to muck around with figuring it out or being intuitive until they get to a point where they're like, Hey, I'm much more comfortable in how I feel, how I look, how I move, how I think, how I function. Now I'm going to take it a little bit looser. I'm not going to track. I'm not going to measure all this stuff quite as aggressively. I'll check it maybe once or twice a week, make sure things are going. Maybe every three months, I'll come back to it and get some lab testing done. I think that's a very reasonable place to be. Um, but I have seen within the biohacking community, and I always get them you know, stirred up like a hornet's nest when I say this. If the keto community is a little neurotic, the biohacking community is bat crap crazy. Um, with respect to markers and data and algorithms and calculations and ketone to glucose indicators and all, you know, like they're trying to tease this out. And, and I'm probably going to catch a lot of shade for saying this, but um, a good friend of mine, a pretty well-known person in the industry said to me one time that he thought that biohacking was comprised entirely of, of middle-aged white men who were scared, to, uh, scared of death. And I was like, I think that's probably a fairly accurate assessment. Maybe not with the white part, but like, you know, just in terms of just looking when I've gone to these conferences and spoken at these events and seen the people there and the things that they're going through. And I'm like, look, dude, cool. Red light therapy helps you because you live north of an equator or north of a, of a particular line of longitude latitude. And like, you need that. That's cool. But you know what else works? Go the hell outside and lay in the sun for a while. Go do some exercise outside. Go for a walk. You'd be surprised because not only are you hitting all of the good vitamin D conversion stuff, you're also improving serotonin and norepinephrine. Like so many things benefit from just going outside and using nature's own version of a red light therapy machine. And, you know, the other thing that I think it does is it paints this picture for folks that financially can't afford that stuff, that like somehow their life is diminished or that they can't have the results that someone else had because they don't have access to the neuralizer that you put on your forehead that changes your brain waves by shocking you and the red light that goes into your veins. And I mean, 
it gets to a point where it becomes absurd, truly absurd. And that's the point when it becomes neurotic, when it becomes ridiculous, and you start making decisions based on incomplete data, like the quantitative data rather than the qualitative data, it starts to become a real problem. And if you're not willing to say, hey, great, I'm a quant guy, and I am, I grew up in business, I mean, I... You know, if I can't measure it, I can't make decisions on it, right? I'm a quantitative guy at my core. But if I ignore the qualitative aspects of any client I have or myself or anyone else that comes in my path, um, you know, I can give them all the best information in the world, give them all the correct information. But if I walk away having not touched, met them at like a human level and kind of met them where they are and spent time and invested with them. They're never going to improve because I've ignored the qualitative or the quantitative. And I think the same is true with a lot of the measuring stuff. And I agree with Sean on this. And there's a number of folks in the community who are screaming this and we're notorious for track what you eat and measure what you eat. But within the context of a boot camp or within the context of a goal that you haven't achieved yet, when you've achieved that goal or when you've reached kind of your good enough point, I hope you get to a point where you can eat in a more intuitive way and that you can stop needing to know what your GKI is before you can decide whether it's an appropriate time to eat. I use my glucose measures to determine when I should break my fast. Like, I got an idea. Use your stomach. Are you hungry? Friggin' eat something. Like, or if you're trying to cut fat, acknowledge that hunger is just part of the process and you're going to have to make peace with that. But trying to turn a qualitative feeling like hunger into a quantitative measure is – the words I have for it will get this uh, an NC-17 rating, so I'll just bite my <laughs> tongue and say I'm not a big fan of overanalyzing data. Because I think it creates paralysis in our decision making, and I think it, it when it when it doesn't create paralysis, it creates that sort of tiger in the bush mentality where we're making decisions and concluding things that the evidence quantitatively quantitatively the evidence does not bear out the qualitative feeling that you have that there's a tiger in that bush because you've made a false correlation. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, that's so interesting. I love that point. Um, I think it, it just, to me, it really seems like we are, we're like overthinking things that the body just kind of knows how to do. And if we could just get out of our own way, and like you said, eat when you're hungry, go outside because that's what you should do. Go move when you feel like it. If you just stuck with those things, we'd probably all be just fine. And we just have so much of this idea of like technology and all these things that we need to be able to determine how we feel to begin with. It just seems completely unnecessary. I'll say Dr. Andy Galpin wrote a book about that very topic. And, and I think it's it's really apropos. And I apologize, the name of the book's escaping me right now. But it was talking about how many gadgets we're using to try and make decisions that actually prevent us from doing the damn things that we intended to do in the first place or that we should have done. And so I, I sort of step back and I look at this and I just say to myself, like, you know, look, um, when you eat foods that are foods, when you're eating a, a high satiety, higher volume diet that is lower in caloric intake, generally speaking, it's funny, like I'll work with clients who are, you know, really desperately trying to lose fat. And I may put them on like a say 1100, 1200 calorie diet and they, they throw a fit and they lose their mind. And I'm like, just give me two weeks and then we'll, we'll pick this back up. 
And then about a week later, I'll get this message and I'll be like, oh my God, I cannot eat all of this food. And the reason is because 1,200 calories of Twinkies is a whole lot different than 1,200 calories of, you know, grilled chicken, you know, uh, grilled chicken thigh with some, you know, some asparagus and a little bit of, you know, so for the paleoish folks, you know, maybe some brown rice or something off to the side. It's crazy how much more food you can consume in terms of volume and mass for the same calorie intake as what we're getting in a Western diet. And so, you know, when we kick that over and we start eating in a more, I do cringe a little bit, I say ancestral way, because I think there were a lot of ancestral diets that existed in different areas. But when we start eating in a more, more, I guess, evolutionarily appropriate way, we just don't tend to overeat. We don't tend towards, you know, I've never seen somebody having a panic attack go, I'm going to lose it right now. Somebody didn't get me some grilled asparagus like that's just not a thing you stop seeking out those foods to deal with the issues because in having a full stomach because you're eating good wholesome foods you don't really have the room to throw the twinkies down or the the cupcakes or whatever and you start to have to kind of deal with the anxiety as its own thing rather than coalescing or commingling it with my hunger levels or you know you know, how many sodas that I have today or whatever the thing is that is your your coping mechanism for that anxiety or for that that phobia or whatever it is you're dealing with. Yeah, totally. Divorcing those two things can be really challenging initially. Um, but you're right. I think it's worth the challenge to be able to go through that, to see that they are two separate things. You don't need the one to deal with the other. The other is still going to be there. And unless you're being very conscious and, and really facing those anxieties or fears or whatever it is you're facing without trying to cover it up, I mean, that's the only way those things can kind of lessen and go away is by bringing that consciousness into it rather than hiding behind something else, food, alcohol, mm -hmm. drugs, whatever it is. And that is the biggest difficulty in change across the board is sometimes I think we fall into that analysis paralysis thing because the the notion of being able to change scares us. And so getting wrapped around the axle of once I figure out the appropriate diet for me, then I'll make the efforts to change. Or once I go to a gym or once, I, you know, like they'll, they'll start putting these sort of can kicking conditions onto it because it feels like making progress without actually making any progress. It's sort of like uh, they talk about in like motivational interviewing that you're creating the intention to do a thing without actually taking any steps towards doing it. It still releases dopamine. It still actually triggers the body to go, I did good. Give me a Snickers bar. Um, by the way, y'all figure out my favorite candy based on how many times I've referenced a Snickers bar <laughs> in this episode. But, um, you know, I, I think that it's just a really... It's a really interesting thing that people sometimes think that losing weight is about the food. And I just, I, I think that to some degree it is in the sense that if we're eating good quality foods, we tend to sort of naturally make other changes. But man, if that's the case, then why does every single diet on the planet, keto included, have like an 80 to 95% recidivism rate after two to three years? And it's because we're not addressing the underlying issues in our lifestyles and in our relationships and the other things that affect drive and, and impact how and when and how much and how often we eat. And so we just get driven right back to it. Yeah. You know, we get right, driven right back to the pizza parlor because, you know, my husband really 
he wants to go there and it's his favorite place and it's where we fell in love. Well, then he gets upset because I only have a diet soda while he's sitting there eating. You know, there's just so many stories I've heard over the years from people justifying and explaining why. And in every case, it's boundary crossing relationships. It's unaddressed anxiety that they won't talk to a therapist or get help for its abuse histories and eating to cope with those things. And the, you know, the, the really nasty side effects of that, there's a thousand different stories, but they all come back to, I changed my diet temporarily, but I didn't use the margin that I created by changing my diet to affect impact and improve the lifestyle that I'm living to try and make change. Mm. That's such a good point. I absolutely love that. Well, you've referenced uh, Snickers bars, and so hopefully we get a show sponsorship. Maybe we can monetize. That would be great. See what you can do. The the, the mound or the Mars company better step up here and do right. something. Exactly. We plugged them a lot. Um, but you've also referenced The Simpsons. You've said my, one of my favorite phrases, which is jumping the shark that not a lot of people know that I absolutely love. Um, and so you, my friend, have a lifetime invite of returning to our show anytime um, to, to go more sure. in depth into some of your other endeavors, including um, Element, um, you know, all the things you've done there, I would be really curious to talk to you about all those things. There's just not enough hours in the day to, <laughs> to chat with you. Um, absolutely love the content from today. I've really learned a lot and seen things in a different light. And I think you approach things in a very reasonable and thoughtful way, which I really appreciate. If you had, you know, one thing that, that somebody listening to this podcast could take away from this conversation and apply in their lives, what would that be? I think I might know the direction you're going to go in this, but I, I'm still curious to hear. That's always a fun question. Um, this is one of those where I'm stalling for time because I've got about 15 things racing through my head, but <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with a fork. Um, I would say this, forgive more people in your life and start with yourself. Um, so many people carry grudges against themselves and they don't realize how it's affecting their, their perspective of the world, their perspective of their neighbors and their friends and their spouses they don't understand how it's affecting how often and what they're shoving down their gullet and how they feel and how it's affecting their, their sleep and their immune function and, and their mood and their, you know, all of this stuff, just let S word go. Um, you know, let, let it pass, you know, somebody wronged you. Okay. You know, somebody cheated you. Okay. And that doesn't mean you have to be passive, but if it's still, <laughs> if it's still living in your brain, if it is still eating at you, and if it's you eating at you, you're going to eat. That's just most people gravitate to food, alcohol, sex, drugs, or gambling. Those are the big ones. And so often I talk with people and, you know, I've had meetings at conferences and I've watched people break down because they just, had this realization that there was anger towards themselves, that self-judgment, that, that whatever, let it go. Just let it go. Live your life. Go do the things you enjoy to hell with anybody that has a different opinion or thinks differently. That's their problem, not yours. And just do your thing. Wow. Follow-up question to that. How difficult was that advice for you to take in your own life and your own personal journey? Extremely. Um, and I think it will be for everyone because we know what we know habits and patterns are habits and patterns for a reason and breaking them sometimes feels weird to this day. After having lost 300 pounds, I still am uncomfortable taking my shirt off in public. Um, you know, it's, it still creates anxiety in me. Um, you know, I go down a laundry list of these things. Uh, I still, when I go to a restaurant where I used to eat all the time, I still 
avoid the table that we used to eat at. I will literally wait for another table rather than going and sitting there. Um, there is just a psychology to all of it that is twice as hard as you think, and it'll take twice as long as you think. But at the end of the day, it will be twice as sweet as you actually believe it'll be. And so, yeah. Well, this is why I love the title of your book, Ken Sukuroi. Can, can you just briefly say why you landed on that and what that is in Japanese culture? So I actually had someone ask me this question. I was doing a speaking gig in Virginia, and I was trying to explain it. And I don't think they quite got the, the reference. So um, so I lost 300 pounds. I actually had about an eight-hour surgery to reconstruct arms and stomach and stuff after that was you know said and done. Um, Kinsukuroi is the Japanese art of taking broken vessels and actually putting them back together using gold filament or, or lead or silver filament. And usually it's gold or silver. Um, and I just was looking one day, I had my shirt off, I'd gotten out of the shower and I was looking at the suture lines under my arms and on my sides and my chest. And I thought, I literally am a broken vessel that's been put back together. And it just became something really impressive as I got to reading more about it and understanding that the broken vessel that's been put back together is actually more highly prized in Japanese culture than a whole vessel that hasn't been broken and restored because the broken vessel has been used. It's been touched by ancestors. It's been, it's been treated roughly and restored by loving hands. And so there's just a lot of, uh, symbolism and, and meaning behind the the term that doesn't just sort of start and end with uh, Tyler likes Japanese culture, which I do. It's more to do with the fact that I am a broken vessel. I absolutely love that. Tyler Cartwright, this has been an amazing conversation. Where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? So normally when I'm on a video, I'll say I'll be the only Tyler Cartwright that looks like me when you go to find me on social media. But two things happen. One, I figured out that that's not true because I have had my pictures all a few times. And secondly, <laughs> um, secondly, um, we're, we're on audio, so uh, that won't be a thing. But uh, so Keto Gains uh, and Facebook and Reddit and Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you'll find me there. I'm happy to, to jump in there. Um, I am on Instagram at Ty underscore Cartwright because I was a late adopter and had to take a stupid version of my name. Um, uh, Facebook, you can find me there. I'll be bearded with a giant head, and I'm pretty hard to miss. Um, so there's that. Um, I will tell a fun story. My, my Twitter account is at Tyler Cartwright, and I'm very seldom there. But I had been at Tyler Cartwright, too, for a long time, and I kept sending messages to this, uh, this account at, at Tyler Cartwright that n- never posted anything, never did anything. And I was pissed, like, I mean, angry about, like, how this person wouldn't respond. I was like, dude, swap me handles. Like, you don't use it. I, I, I operate kind of in the public eye, and I'd really like to have it. I'll pay you. Just we'll work something out. No response. And then one day, my account got messed with a little bit. And so I went to reset the password, and I said, for which account do you want to reset the password? And it dawned on me. That sometime early in the days of Twitter, whether I'd had a drink or two, I don't know what happened, but I apparently created at Tyler Carter and then never used it. And then I, so I had been messaging myself, trying to get me to give me the username that I was trying to get. So, uh, 
for those of you that thought he's smart, no, I'm not. I am a big old goofy redneck from West Kentucky, and that's what I am. So I now have at Tyler Cartwright, and I threw at Tyler Cartwright too in the trash. But uh, so you'll find me there. I am generally most active in Reddit and Facebook. Uh, I live in Tennessee, so uh, come find me. That's awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. I was wondering if you were offended by you calling you certain names and trying to get that Twitter account. weren't offended at all. Tough skin. I didn't call myself too many names, but I was pretty upset with the, like sh- shadow me, if you will. I was I was pretty annoyed at first, and then I was like, "Well, this is a great story to give at the beginning of any lecture where I want people to understand that I am not nearly as smart as they make, and they come away thinking." So uh, uh, for sure, that's amazing. I absolutely love that, Tyler Cartwright. Thank you again so much for your journey and for everything you've learned along the way, and thank you so much for doing the right thing the right way and helping educate people and helping inspire people along the way and, and keeping that human element and not just be, you know, a bunch of data or metrics or mic- macros that people need to hit. I think it's really important that you're making so many great connections with people and we're so appreciative of you and your work and for taking some time out with us today. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. It was an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body. It's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.